That was Symphony Number no. 2 by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. I'm Nick Pignataro, and this is Brewing Classical, conversations about conductors and composers, and always over a cup of coffee. We leave the real world behind for a short time and dive into mysticism and an infatuation with all things exotic, with one of the great Russian composers. The 1800s world felt much smaller than it does today, at least to a Russian musician, and tales from the Middle East and Arab world created all kinds of distraction and wonder. Nicknamed Antar, Rimsky-Korsakov's Second Symphony is relatively little-known work that focuses on one exotic story from the Middle East, and it's filled, though, with neat melodies that tie Europe and the Arab world together. So grab your favorite mug, fill it with your favorite or closest brew, and join us, won't you? It's a cold, snowy day in February here, so it's really nice to have this Rwanda Karambi cup of coffee, again from happymugcoffee.com. So the process of this coffee, it's a washed process, and it's from the Lake Kivu region of Rwanda. The mill is called Karambi, and the altitude, it says, was 5,500 feet. Its varietals are bourbon, and tasting notes are red fruit, chocolate, whiny, and sweet. The description in this coffee says that Rwanda coffee is like a hug in a mug. This one comes from the shores of Lake Kivu, grown by a co-op of small land-owning family farmers. The mild fruit and the sweetness are comforting to drink. So that's Rwanda Karambi by Happy Mug Coffee. The second symphony by Rimsky-Korsakov was composed when he was a student of Miley Palakurev, which was in 1868. And these two were a member of the five. We consider five Russian composers that were modernist and nationalist in the late 1800s. Cesar Kui, Alexander Borodin, Miley Balakirev, uh, Balakirev of course, the, the teacher of all of these, Modest Mussorgsky, and, of course, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. And interestingly, um, all of these composers had their mark made for them by Balakirev. They all sort of were taught in the same way and to some degree were forced to compose like the elder composer. But what's really interesting about this crew is that without Balakirev, maybe this compositional team may have never come to be. For example, Rimsky-Korsakov was a naval officer and Kui was a military engineer. Mussorgsky was in civil service and Borodin was a, was a chemist. So this connection of composers is really fascinating. But Rimsky-Korsakov in this group was the rebel. He was thinking outside of the circle and kind of thought, uh, was the first, I think, to enact, act against Balakirev's compositional will. This led to his job, Rimsky-Korsakov, as an inspector of Navy bands in Russia, which actually led him to learn how to play as many instruments as possible. This, coupled with his formalized conservatory training, led to him adapting the symphony and, and making edits to the work in later years. He also built on that with some conductor training and experience. So between conducting and be surveying the Navy bands and learning many instruments, formalizing his training in conservatory, he built upon his earliest uh, 1868 version of the symphony. This really was the first Russian programmatic orchestral work. And remember that program music is music that accompanies a story versus absolute music 
music that is written simply for music's sake. We often think about Beethoven's Sixth Symphony as a program piece of uh, music, and his Fifth Symphony being absolute music. So again, this work, the Second Symphony, was a program piece of music. And the story was by Russian linguist Osip Senkovsky. And the five, again, these five composers, they were fascinated with what we would call Orientalism. And they would use modes and scales that seemed exotic. And this ties in with Osip Senkovsky's story. The subject of the story is pre-Islamic Arab warrior. And this was a poet, Antara ibn Shaddad, which was approximately 550 A.D., we know that this Arab warrior, Shaddad, was probably a dark-skinned slave with an Arab father and a black mother. And we've heard that uh, he won freedom uh, through his brave acts. And this led to an exaggerated epic, which was written between the 12th and 15th century. However, Osip Senkowski's tale, though it takes is about this Arab warrior, is an original. It's a little bit unrelated to the epic. And it's worth it, everybody, to take a big sip of coffee and uh, sit back with your nice warm mug and listen to the story, which places Rimsky-Korsakov's thinking. It's worth it in this case, I think, to dive into the mysticism of the story. So here we go. Antar has developed a loathing for his fellow men because they have rewarded his valor and generosity with wickedness. He has fought for them, given away his possessions to aid them, and in return he has received nothing but hatred and betrayal. He has retreated to the ruins of Palmyra in the desert of Sham, vowing never again to set eyes on the race of men. There he sees a gentle, graceful gazelle trotting across the desert. Tormented by hunger, he mounts his horse and sets off in pursuit of the animal. He is about to overtake his prey and strike it with a spear, a horrible sound rends the air, and the light of the sun is eclipsed by the shadow of a gigantic bird that is also chasing the gazelle. Antar now feels sorry for the gazelle and attacks the monster instead, hurling his spear into its breast. With a loud cry of anguish, the bird retreats into the distance. The gazelle also disappears, leaving Antar alone in the desert. Exhausted from the struggle, he returns to the ruins and falls asleep on a large slab of hewn rock. In a daydream-like vision, Antar sees himself in the midst of a splendid palace, where an army of servants entertains him with charming songs and plies him with food and wine. He is in the home of the mysterious queen of Palmyra, the Peri Golnazar, whose life he saved when she took the form of a gazelle to escape from the clutches of an evil spirit. The, per the grateful Perry wishes to reward Antar with the three pleasures of life, warning him, however, that each one leaves a bitter aftertaste that can only be cured with a new pleasure. The vision disappears and Antar awakes to find himself alone once more amidst the ruins. The first gift bestowed upon Antar is the pleasure of revenge. With Gulnazar's protection, 
he is able to destroy all his enemies, scattering their bloody remains across the desert as carrion for ravens and wolves. He gives full vent to his bloodlust and thirst for vengeance until, at last, no further object of his hatred remains. Having killed every one of his foes, Antar is left with a feeling of emptiness and appalling weariness for the soul for which there is no relief. He returns to the Peri, who offers him a temporary balm for his wounded spirit in the form of another pleasure. The second gift of the Peri is the pleasure of power. Upon leaving the palace, Antar becomes the ruler of countless tribes who unite around him as a single powerful nation. He finds the joy of ruling over men like himself exhilarating, surpassing even the sweetness of vengeance. At first, he tries to use his power to promote the general welfare and share his happiness with others. He soon discovers, however, that the common throng whose well-being he wishes to serve care nothing for his benevolent plans. He begins to suspect that those closest in confidence to him are merely using him to advance their own petty motives and personal gain. His benevolence gradually deteriorates into willfulness and spite. Feelings of suspicion and fear of betrayal gnaw at his soul without respite. Disgusted at being burdened with such useless power, Antar flees to the ruins of Palmyra for the last time. Finally, Antar is to experience the pleasure of love. This he finds in the arms of the Peri herself, who transforms into a beautiful Bedouin maiden. But the Peri reminds him that this is the last of the three pleasures, and that the bitter aftertaste it leaves cannot be cured by anything else. Antar, therefore, begs her to extinguish his life at the first sign of this bitterness, and she swears to do exactly that. After many years of bliss, the Peri notices one day that Antar is growing bored and distracted. With tears in her eyes, she embraces him and kisses him passionately. His heart is inflamed with ever greater ardor until, in the throes of ecstasy, he perishes in the arms of his beloved, his soul forever united with hers. As we've been enjoying the story, which is worth it uh, in the sense of building this mystical, exotic background and putting the music into context, we've been listening to the first movement of the symphony. And this first symphony, uh, sorry, this first movement of the symphony does follow that narrative pretty closely. It's sort of episodic, meaning scene by scene, we hear. The three later movements, though, depict the three pleasures, generally speaking. First, vengeance, then power, and then lastly, love. There are motives throughout this symphony, and a motive is a very short collection of musical notes. The first is mysterious bassoon chords, lower woodwind chords, that occur often in the work.
The second motive is a held note, a tie note, that's followed by triplet eighth notes. Again, we hear this motive often. The final short motive in this section is this rising arpeggio motive. The entire reason that we bother to find these motives in the first place is to allow the composer to identify the mystery and the exoticism of this story. These motives eventually give way to themes, which we put motives together and we add other notes to create longer versions of, of melodies that represent either characters or ideas. The first is an antar theme, and this theme is first heard in the violas. We hear it first here, but we hear it again and again and again, often combined with other themes throughout the work. Here is the Golnazar theme, which is first heard in the flute one. Remember the first flute. This is the this is the the, the Peri or the mystical princess type character who was at once a gazelle and now uh, a sort of princess. There are three more motives, not exactly themes, but short melodic fragments that are worth identifying in the scherzo section of this first movement. The first is a staccato motive of 16th notes. Staccato meaning that the notes sound pecky and separated. Here is a second motive worth identifying uh, within this section. This third motive is used most often 
um, in conjunction with the second motive, these last two have this hemiola feel, which is a slight rhythmic displacement. Hemiola meaning that the that the the melodic material, the melody, doesn't fall necessarily exactly on the beat, but on upbeats. It kind of messes with our sense of time, or at least our perception of the rhythm and the time. The second, third, and fourth movements are far more static than the first, which means once they get started, they sort of uh, maintain the same feel, generally speaking, throughout the entire movement, unlike that first movement, which goes through many cycles or many episodes of the story. And remember that the second mode of, sorry, the second movement, third movement, and fourth movement, these were all um, connected to the three pleasures in the story. So the second movement depicts vengeance. This has a more uh, classical, a la... Joseph Haydn uh, concept. It's a single theme that is generally recycled. Haydn and classical composers would do this often, where they would get a good melody, get a good rhythmic motive, and use it in so many different ways throughout the movement. So here it is, the second movement of this symphony, which signifies vengeance. The third movement is a march, and it has a singing melody, a cantabile uh, melody, which would be very familiar to fans of Rimsky-Korsakov, particularly Scheherazade and his other works. So again, this third movement is the power of pleasure. <laughs>
The fourth movement contains a melody arabe, or an Arab melody, which, for some reason, if we say it in French, it seems fancier. But anyway, this is an authentic, a true Eastern melody given to Rimsky-Korsakov by another Russian composer. And Rimsky-Korsakov does a few things to make it seem even more exotic, at least in the mind of a, um, of a European composer. And do remember that uh, Russia, at least uh, much of Western Russia, is part of the European continent and not necessarily Asian continent. And not only that, Rimsky-Korsakov and, and, other, uh, and the Five primarily were in the St. Petersburg region, which is a very European city and not very much an Asian city, particularly that most of the music studied would have been music of, of the big three countries, which would really be uh, France, Germany, and Italy. But anyway, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov took time to make this even more exotic by adding an English horn. And the English horn, when it plays this melody, sounds exotic. It ex it's associated with the exotic. And the way the bassoon is used also um, creates this exotic feel. The melody is given this embellishment, like fast fluttering notes, uh, which is very similar to earlier themes that we heard in the first movement, which makes it even more uh, Eastern.
We turn now to this section of the episode called Subito. A lot of musicians, particularly young musicians, learn that Subito means suddenly. We usually see it before a dynamic marking, meaning suddenly soft or suddenly loud. Subito piano or subito forte. But the more accurate translation from the Italian to the English is right now. To change right now. So, Subito, what's going on in the world of orchestral music or classical music right now? From Peter Dobrin of the Philadelphia Inquirer, notes that the Philadelphia Orchestra has another major artistic voice in the room these days, and that's a good thing, he says. Natalie Stutzmann, the last month, named the orchestra's next principal guest conductor. She doesn't start the job officially until the fall, but she's already been here in Philadelphia. In a program of two of Beethoven favorites, Stutzmann, Stutzmann emerges as the focus of this week's digital stage program. So, there was no soloist and no premiere, just a plain old-fashioned good classical music concert that pulls back the curtain, Dobber, and says on what kind of musical mind is now at work here. The 45-minute-ish show uh, comes with a lot of interview talk about the music and the orchestra's chemistry with Stutzmann. Exactly what the rapport is between the conductor and the ensemble can't be fully answered by a digital production where audio and video engineering obscures exactly what's happening and why. But what's clear, according to Peter Dobrin, is that Stutzmann hears these pieces as fresh. And she's free of the interpretive varnish that has yellowed the corners of this crystalline music. In Beethoven's Symphony No. 1, where, in other hands, culminating moments sometimes slow down as if struggling up a hill, he says that Stutzmann pushes straight ahead and that there is a through line in every phrase she encounters. He says the main tempo she chooses for the movement doesn't sprint, but glides, and majestically so. He's also, also highly uh, impressed by her conducting technique, which is a good sign that we have a new, fabulous principal guest conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Staying with the Philadelphia Orchestra, the music director, Yannick Nezé-Sagan, has written an open letter to President Biden and Vice President Harris to add a cabinet-level arts position. He says artists need financial support to continue to create, and the arts institutions of America need it to survive. While the vaccine is now here, and we can finally start to see the end of the pandemic, the financial implications will last for years, without meaningful government intervention. Yannick Nezes again urges the president and vice president to consider appointing a cabinet-level champion dedicated to the arts and culture. And this has been proposed by others, and it's starting to gather steam. In order to progress to elevate the arts, we need a voice at the table that will be heard. He posted the letter on social media, and an orchestra spokesman said that the letter would be sent directly to the Biden and Harris administration. So again, this is music director Yannick Nezes again calling for an arts cabinet position, one that doesn't exist currently in the White House staff. In December, late December, the Save Our Stages Act was included in the United States COVID-19 relief package. As part of the $900 billion relief package, the Save Our Stages Act was passed by Congress in a bipartisan agreement. Co-sponsored in the Senate by Amy Klobuchar and John Cornyn, it was championed by Senate Minority Leader, then-Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York. 
The bill will allow the entertainment business, arts venues, and independent talent agencies to apply for grants from the Small Business Administration. Organizations that have lost a minimum of 25% of their revenue will qualify and will receive aid for employee salaries, rent, utilities, and etc. And those that have lost more than 90% of their revenue will get to apply first. The bill, which is good, will also provide uh, extended unemployment benefits and a second round of payment protection program loans for those businesses demonstrating a major economic loss. Again, this is funding uh, for the, from the U.S. COVID-19 relief package as part of the Save Our Stages Act. Join me next time as I welcome someone in my own family, my wife, Mrs. Ali Pinataro, to discuss what it takes to audition for a top-notch music college, excel at an instrument, and what goes into the ultimate decision of choosing a classical music career as a professional horn player or not. That's my better half, Ali Pinataro, next time on Brewing Classical. Brewing Classical grew out of COVID-19 stay-at-home restrictions when all of us needed just a bit of music to get through the day. My hope is that you took your mind off your everyday life during this episode and are a little bit refreshed and more ready to face the next day. The professional recording in this episode is from Telarc Digital, Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 2 Little Russian, and Rimsky-Korsakov Symphony No. 2 Antar, with Lauren Maisel conducting the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. Special thanks to the Strathaven students who challenged me to make this podcast and willed it into existence. Theme music for this episode was written and produced by Cecilia Olszewski, Jessica Orr, and Mateo Machado. I thank Ms. Kate Plows for her tireless support and reminder that the world always needs more storytelling. Thank you, dear listener, for spending a little bit of time with us today. Be sure to rinse out your mug and let it dry for the next episode of Brewing Classical. Goodbye.